I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking to Ron Gula. Ron is the president of Gula Tech Adventures. Ron started his cybersecurity career as a network penetration tester for the NSA. At BBN, he developed network honeypots to lure hackers and ran U.S. internetworking's team of penetration testers and incident responders. As CTO of Network Security Wizards, Ron pioneered the art of network security monitoring and produced the Dragon Intrusion Detection System, which was recognized as a market leader by Gartner in 2001. As CEO and co-founder of Tenable Network Security, Ron led the company's rapid growth in product vision from 2002 through 2016. He helped them scale to more than 20,000 customers worldwide, raise $300 million in venture capital, and achieve revenues in excess of $100 million annually. Currently, Ron is president at Gula Tech Adventures, which focuses on investing and advisement of cybersecurity companies. In this episode, we discuss starting in security in the 1990s at the NSA, starting at Tenable and its rapid growth to IPO, different startup spaces, where he gets involved in startups, advice he gives to founders, what he looks to invest in, where he sees the cybersecurity market going, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Ron, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Doing really good. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, and my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. It's uh, You've been somebody I've kind of followed in the industry over the years, and uh, a lot of the companies and products that you have helped flagship I've used and still use to this day, but kind of walk us through a little bit how you even became a quote-unquote cybersecurity professional. So we have to go way back to the to the mid-90s when there, the word cyber was something used in, on, on the $6 million man and science fiction, right? And um, I was in the Air Force, and I really wanted to fly, but uh, it turns out that uh, G-forces don't really uh, uh, agree with me. I'm a, I'm a healthy person, but, you know, you put me under four or five, you know, Gs, and uh, it's not a, good, not a good quality in a fighter pilot. But I was always into computers, and I got to actually go work at the uh, National Security Agency as part of my Air Force uh, service, and um, I really got into pen testing. And I had a real, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't an offensive guy. I was a defensive guy. So I did traditional pen testing for, um, uh, for, and of course this is live coming to you now. Right. Um, and you know, and traditional pen testing as it was in the late nineties or so, and it just got me exposed to everything, uh, you know, uh, Solaris, Linux, windows. I mean, I got to, you know, learn how to hack Nobel when, when it first came out and that really kind of got me hooked, uh, in that if you want to stay in this industry, you always have to learn, um, but I kind of realized that working, you know, long term in the government wasn't, uh, you know, really what I, I, I wanted to do. And I, I, I sort of started stepping out, worked at BBN for a while. I actually worked with Marty Resch, the guy who was not only my roommate in college, but started, um, you know, Sourcefire and Snort. And uh, we worked on some honeypot technology together in the, the late 90s. Uh, I went to a cloud company called U.S. Internetworking, and I was using the ISS Real Secure Intrusion Detection System. And... I was a little frustrated with it because it didn't run on Linux. So I wrote something called the Dragon Intrusion Detection System. And 
came home one day and, and asked my wife to help uh, found Network Security Wizards. And we hit the market really, really good at the right time. Uh, that company was acquired by Interesis Networks. And then based on that experience, I you know, had the opportunity to work with um, not only the creator of Nessus, but uh, uh, the gentleman who led uh, business development you know, for, the, for the acquisition of Network Security Wizards from Interesis, Jack Hufford. We all founded uh, Tenable Network Security. Uh, my wife, Cindy, uh, she, she worked there, came in, you know, helped with, started with all the ops and background. And sort of the rest is history. So I've had a lot of fun, you know, doing um, doing that part of cyber. Yeah, now we see Tenable going for its, uh, its big IPO. So had you thought back in the day, hey, we're going to take this to a company that's that's going to be publicly traded? And was that ever part of the plan to say, you know, we're going to start something and go as big as we can? Or was it, you know, trying to serve a need at the time? So, you know, now we're doing a lot of investing in startups and, you know, the startup people, even people we turn, who turn us down, they say, hey, did you know that when you started Tenable, we're going to go public? And, you know, it's nice to have that as a goal, but, but I personally didn't, didn't know that. I, I kind of ran the company, uh, you know, with the concept that as long as you, you know, supported the customers, took care of the customers, um, stayed ahead of the technology curve, right? Because, you know, 15 years, we suffered virtualization, mobilization, and, and, and cloudification. And, uh, you know, we made the, the investments in doing that. But you know, anywhere along the way, somebody could have come along and, and, and you know, made an acquisition officer, officer offer. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, after Thursday of, you know, July 26, uh, Tenable's probably going to be on the public market. If it's out before then, you know, you can watch us ring the bell uh, next week, which is, which is awesome. And I hope other people get to experience that. Um, but so few companies get to the growth and scale um, that's attractive to public markets. Uh, I try to tell people, you know, worry about profitability, worry about culture, worry about the basics first before you start thinking about scaling, you know, your your cyber companies. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, being in the Denver market, there's lots of cybersecurity startups out here, and some of the the incubators I've kind of tried to work with, and I think it's it's we're at an interesting point to try to say to people hey yes there's there might be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow but try to stay to your roots and focus on what you're trying to do and get a mission statement together first it's sometimes hard in this kind of market particularly when you see a lot of these companies that are then being labeled as unicorns and different things in silicon valley it's interesting i I'm, i like to wave the maryland flag but i'll wave the colorado flag for a minute i mean i think everybody's realized that amazon and google have a tremendous presence out there but there's also some great Cyber companies out there. You got Logarithm. Uh, you know, Chris Peterson you know, actually worked at Network Security Wizard. He helped make Dragon. Um, you know what 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 it was, uh, which was which was pretty good. And he's doing a great job at Logarithm. You got Webroot out there. Um, you know, they're they're you know when people talk about threat intelligence and they talk about the data they get, a lot of people rely on Webroot, which is pretty cool. Um, I think Carbon Black has a research group out there, which is which is pretty uh, uh, pretty pretty renowned and doing doing good. And, uh, you know, one of our portfolio companies is Automox. It's cloud-based patch management, and, and they're out that way. So it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of good stuff going on out there. Yeah, for sure. And, yeah, going back to the point of, of what you said about Maryland, I'll, I'll wave the Maryland flag now. I mean, it's amazing to think what you guys did out of that space or area and then seeing Snort. Um, there's, it, was, it was really interesting kind of seeing that happen as it's happened to where it, it's almost interesting looking back now where – People should be thinking about where they are at any given time because you never know when you're going to look back and say, wow, that was an amazing growth story or there was this little nexus of people that were going to come out and do amazing things. 
I do get asked a bit to compare sort of like mid-Atlantic companies with, um, you know, Silicon Valley companies. And inevitably, they really mean, you know, federal focus companies, you know, versus, um, you know, cloud or, you know, internet focused um, companies. And it, and it's not really a fair comparison in cyber because, you know, although the federal government has different standards, you know, they're not governed by PCI, they're not governed by, um, you know, GDPR. Actually, that's probably not a true statement if they have foreign data, of course. But my point is, is they're, they're coming to the, to, the, to the game with a lot more policy and central management. Um, you know, doing cyber in the federal government is like making it big in New York City. If you can make it there, you can make it big anywhere as long as your product just doesn't you know, exude, you know, federal government, um, you know, kind of, kind of, I, I don't want to be too, too negatively. There's a lot of companies that have focused on the Fed and then have, have really died, you know, because the, their product just wasn't sellable in the commercial market. So if you can balance those two things, you can be very successful. So, you know, kind of being an advisor to lots of early stage companies, is there a particular point that you tend to get involved? Is it at idea and creation or seed rounds? Where do you kind of find the spot that, one that you think uh, you typically get brought into to maybe it being different than where you might necessarily wanting to be brought into? So it's been a little bit of a, of a journey, you know, stepping away from, from Tenable after 15 years, I had done some angel investing that was very, you know, lucrative and very successful. I've also had a couple, couple failures, uh, but I had enough experience in it, including, you know, great outcomes like ThreatGrid, you know, being acquired by, uh, by, by Cisco. That um, you know, I, I, I basically chatted with with my wife about this. Said I think we can do this together because between her operations experience and from my knowledge of the market and and the, and the technology side side of things and our, our access to capital, um, you know, we'd be pretty you know pretty pretty good uh, making some investments. And um, you know, so we started out small um, on purpose, uh, but then we've making we've been making larger uh, investments. So like our most recent investment was in a company that's a threat intelligence gateway called, um, called Bandura. And actually it's, uh, sits in front of your firewall and it blocks, uh, IP packets, uh, based on your, you know, your threat intelligence list, which could be hundreds of millions of, you know, uh, IP addresses changing daily. Um, but we have done investments as small as $50,000 and, um, you know, and, and almost put just as much work in, in, into those things. So now, now we're at the point where we've partnered with a lot of major cybersecurity uh, firms out there. We just with uh, ClearSky uh, on a deal for a, a spam uh, AI-based machine learning spam company called called Inky, um, and we've got a decent reputation that we're working in sort of a non-threatening way with a lot of the major cyber uh, venture capital firms out there and. So now we're working with them on a lot of a lot of new deals. So so we'll look at anybody, anything really. Um, it, you know, we don't want to compete with Tenno. We don't want to compete with our, um, you know, our our current portfolio. Um, but if I tell somebody no, I'll at least tell them no. You know why why no? And um, you know, and and we're not we're not right a hundred percent. You know, we passed on a company called Atata uh, that I just I just wasn't as excited on, and they just got acquired for. Um, you know, for what, what they're doing, they do, uh, you know, user awareness training for security and uh, they have a really great outcome there. Is there, is there something common in the companies that you've invested and worked with that is, um, I wouldn't necessarily say a pattern, but a theme that you find that does get you excited or attracts you to what you do get involved with? Yeah. If you visit, you know, gula.tech, gula.tech, we got all the portfolio companies up there. We group them into, you know, web app security, cyber hygiene, and, and, and threat intelligence. 
but but the reality is is you know there's there's a couple fishing companies there's a couple different people who produce thread consume thread you know push thread out um you know the web app stuff is everything from you know uh serverless security all the way up to you know containers and and uh rasp you know type type solutions and um you know, it, it's the kind of thing we, we talk to a lot of people who are in the market for a security widget and or security, you know, magic quadrant, so to speak. And it's nice to, to, to have a conversation with them about why we invested in a certain vendor or solution and why we didn't invest in, an, in another one. That's always that's always kind of fun. Um, and, you know, some of the stuff that's really, really, you know, leading edge, uh, we like to put out there, too. So we invest in this company called Nano VMs. Uh, which is actually a uh, a unikernel, so it's even something more advanced than like serverless or um, you know containers, and uh, just having you know exposure to stuff like that is 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 a lot of fun. I really enjoy the the, the market. What I don't like is better mousetraps. You know, if if if, if there's a mousetrap out there, like a good example is the design pattern. I'm, I'm going to sense. I'm going to then throw this into Elastic or some sort of schema. I'm going to then do machine learning or AI and put machine, um, you know, threat intelligence on top of that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of companies doing that. Uh, and, unless it's a different kind of business model, I, that's that's very unique and defendable. I wouldn't want to do that again. Um, so it's it's fun, and it's uh, I, I based on what we did at Tenable and now what I'm doing now, I feel like I have uh, a decent sense of understanding of what's going on in the market out there. Gotcha. And w- one of the things I would imagine that you have an ability to do besides just advising on the technology and the trends, you see that, but the human element. So you have folks that are maybe good technologists or they're coming out of something, maybe an engineering background that are saying, Hey, I want to be a founder. I want to be a company owner. What are some of the things that you typically try to counsel with those folks and steer them in the right direction to maybe avoid some of the traps that you've seen or even had it over your career? What we try to do is, so on one hand, we're trying to really encourage people to be entrepreneurs. I think that there are a lot of very smart people who are are very successful. Uh, perhaps they do consulting. Uh, perhaps they're in IT. Perhaps you know whatever. But they they might not ever think that they could go and start a company and you know even be the CEO of a company. And, um, and I'm trying to tell people that it's, you know, there's a lot of people who do it and fail, but there's even more, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that do it and succeed that this is a career path people should think about doing. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't just do it cause you want to do it. I- I've actually had a lot of people cause we, we, we do a lot of public speaking at, um, um, you know, incubation events, you know, accelerators, even, even high schools and, 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 and stuff like that. I have a lot of people come, Hey, I want to be a CEO. Someday. Like, Hey, that's great. You know, you could go learn uh, all the, you know, management, you know, one-on-one things. You can go to this, the military, learn about government and management, you know, military styles of, of, of leadership. But the reality is unless you have passion for some sort of problem that your company is going to solve, it's going to be hard to lead those people. Have that gut instinct of, uh, you know, how you should price something, what you should call something, uh, who's the buyer. And unless you have that stuff natively and you have to rely that on, on um, lots and lots of third-party people, you know, you're, you're probably not going to enjoy it as uh, as much. I guess if you had to give a founder or somebody that says, "Hey, I want to, I want to, you know, kind of hang my shingle and go build something," um, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them 
to you know kind of get on that path for success if there was just kind of like one thing that they can really get their arms around they should go for a single first versus a home run so when you have uh, let's just say it's a stereotypical you know two two ladies in a garage right that that, 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 that kind of thing and you've got the beta version of the product you've got a thousand uh, customers online, well, users online using maybe a freemium copy of the product. And I don't know, Cisco, Symantec, Splunk comes along and says, we will we'll offer you uh, to buy this company right now, $2 million cash right now. And the founders look at each other and go, you know what, we want to work on this for like a week, maybe, or, you know, a month, a year, some period longer. We think we can get 10. Um, they might, they might, but what I'll tell them is that if they're young, take that deal. Uh, it'll change your life because now you're a successful, you know, entrepreneur, and you're going to learn more working on the inside of one of those big companies. And that now, when you go do this again, you can have the luxury of uh, perhaps funding it yourself, uh, attracting more people because of your reputation. So don't be afraid to to take a, an early deal, especially in this market when there's so many uh, cyber product companies. If you've got a company that really wants you to work and you and you, and you think it's okay, take a, take an early deal. Um, that's that's the advice I give people. It may be on the flip side, if you look at it for folks that are trying to think about their exit strategy and what they're going to look like, whether it be in a month, six months, or a year, how would you kind of advise those folks to say, uh, kind of exit out of what they're doing and get prepared to do the next thing, or maybe go sit on a beach somewhere? I, uh, you know, I like sitting on a beach. I like, uh, you know, people should take vacations and not work, uh, you know, 24 by 7. But uh, I, I really like to tell people that they should be thinking about the outcome they want and reverse engineering it backwards. And, and I'm, I'm amazed at how often I'll talk with somebody who's an excellent, an excellent engineer, an excellent, you know, maybe reverse engineer, um, somebody who understands how to break into very complex systems, but they, they do not understand the mechanics of how funding works, how taxes work what it means for their family, their children, and all the different tools that the various states out there have to, you know, make it easy to hire people and, 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 and grow companies. So uh, too often people focus too much on the technology and not on the outcome that they want, um, or at least work backwards from that. And because if you don't, if you don't define the outcome you want, that's another way of saying, if you don't define success, um, somebody else is going to define it for you and you're not going to be able to evaluate uh, you know, an offer that comes in because you haven't thought about it. And uh, it's, it's really a, 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 a very sobering thing to do for your organization because it's your people, your, your time, your reputation. That makes a lot of sense. So kind of looking back to when you started to where things are now, you know, we kind of talked a lot about the different types of problems people are, are trying to solve. Are the problems that you saw 20, 30 years ago gone different changed uh, compared to some of the cybersecurity problems we're trying to solve today? Yeah, the problems are still there. And, you know, I always prime people with confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, I have to always explain, you know, what those are and how that applies to, you know, the, the a stereotypical, you know, grandmother at house being fished for her, you know, her money or her identity. Uh, all the way to, you know, how do you know that the, you know, the, the, the billion dollars that a bank is spending on cyber technology processes and people is actually working? Um, you know, it's, it, it hasn't really changed. Um, 
what has changed is the stakes are a lot higher, right? We've got hackers, you know, influencing our elections. We've got, you know, cyber being used as a tool of, of uh, the military and law enforcement. We've got all sorts of cyber being used to spy on citizens, both probably correctly, legally, and also probably abusive and, and, uh, and, and incorrectly. Uh, cyber is part of everything that we do, whether it's healthcare, national defense, you know, the type of jobs that we're going to have. Every company is a software company. Uh, a gentleman named Michael Capellas, who was on the Tenable Board for a while, he always pointed out every company is a, is a software company. Even if they, you know, are harvesting acorns, you know, or making fertilizer, everybody's a, a thing. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's amazing to think just how pervasive uh, things, things are. That's what's changed. The IT has moved from the basement to the boardroom. And do we think we're, we're finally kind of getting the ears of the folks in the boardroom or what else might it take to really hit home with them to where we start seeing some more, maybe more paradigm and dramatic shifts? It's, um, you know, the boards are very, very aware, especially public boards. They're very, very aware of, of what's going on. Uh, the problem is it's still business risk. You know, if you if you said uh, to any board member, you know, hey, would you like to increase the, um, you know, the employee benefits of any anybody that the, the workforce, uh, you know, they're positive. Of course, would you be willing to spend twice as much as you are on HR to have, you know, 10 percent better, uh, you know, quality of life for your employees? I don't think most public companies are going to do that. Unfortunately, cybersecurity is the same way. It's it's this diminishing turns how, returns. How do you know when you've done just enough or the right stuff because we all know you know a determined team is going to get in and all the hygiene in the world uh, is good and it keeps out a lot of people but if I'm you know well funded and determined I'm coming after you and I can work on this a year you know it's hard to keep somebody like that out of your out of your organization so um, it's difficult to have a conversation about that at the board level which is why I do think we need we need more regulation and, and more transparency in what's been done. Um, you know, I'm astounded when I see stuff like, you know, the, we, we just, I mean, the breach of the week is LabCorp this week. And, um, you know, that's rough because that's, that's actual, you know, blood DNA, you know, medical test data. And, and uh, you know, but there's not a large outcry. People are kind of attuned to the fact that this stuff's happening all the time. And I, I really think there's a lot more legislation that uh needs to be happened uh to 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 you know to, to to do the response um you know gdpr was a good step i thought uh california state of california has something along those lines uh, you know i'm advising the state of maryland that they should be considering you know something along those lines i think that a lot of people you know it, it might you could argue that it's moving the the minimum forward a little bit but at the same time um you know if we're going to increase the cost of hacking an organization more uh, than the result of, you know, getting a conference. I think I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. And there's, there's still something interesting that, you know, I see with, with folks too, as you know, is it, I would say, let's say five years ago when I said a computer forensics incident response or cybersecurity, people were just like, uh-huh, that's computer stuff. I'm, yeah. To the point now where those words kind of have some meaning people know I've, friends and family that are a little bit more versed in what I do and come to me and ask about things. But at the same point, the 
the number of breaches and the scale of breaches and whether it's, I think it was another one that was last week was 90 million record. You know, there's just one after another where I'm almost getting this fear that the public perception is desensitized. They're very desensitized to it. So even when they, they know about it, they know uh, the consequences. They almost don't, it's almost like they don't feel the impact yet. Um, it, and it's, and it's funny because if you look at let's think, something like the net neutrality debate, you know, the net neutrality debate, you know, we can all imagine the stereotypical person who's at their house watching Netflix and they like Netflix and they're not aware that the cost of Netflix is low because of Fios and Comcast and Verizon and AT&T. And they don't want those guys to increase the cost of, of, of Netflix. On the other hand, you know, if you look at something like the, the Apple desktop or the Microsoft desktop, if they said, you know what, security is really, um, really important. We're going to lock it down so the only stuff that you can run is from us. That's actually a fairly secure system. But, you know, if you look at that in the context of the net neutrality debate, it would be, like, oh, my God, what do you mean? We're, 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 it's a closed, uh, you know, a closed garden um, versus a wall garden where it's only the stuff I let, I let, I let run there. That's the future where we're going. Um, and that's the only way you can really make security work. And we don't have any other model to kind of consider. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens here. Certainly. And, and, you know, along those lines of, you know, we're talking about essentially the, the unsexy terms of, of risk management. And that's some of the things that I, I think when I do some of my CISO workshops and get in front of the board and the IT, and I immediately have to say, okay, let's stop using the word cyber right now in the beginning of this and just continue to talk about risk management. And I think both sides of the table kind of grown because I think they want to use a sexy term. Yep. Uh, but the reality is it's risk management. But at least what I try to do is try to find those things that are going to be possibly the wins that can also improve improve productivity in the product space or process around cybersecurity. Have you found that one, that theory can work and that there are some things that can land um, on, on kind of both sides of the table where you can say, hey, look, this might be a technology solution, but it's also going to add some level of improvement. So it's just not a total sunk cost when we talk about risk management and cybersecurity. It's, it's such, I, I, I really have been looking for a company in this, in this space because there's so many ways to slice and dice this. And uh, let me give you, give you a couple examples. So a typical product will maybe take the output of a, um, a vulnerability scanner, you know, vulnerability management solution like Tenable, and then maybe smash that against, you know, controls, two-factor authentication, uh, you know, authorized users, procurement, uh, you know, all, all that. And then they're going to basically turn the crank and say, um, you know, based on our expectations of a, of a compromise and the type of data and the type of regulations, you know, your value at risk is, you know, you can almost imagine Dr. Evil from Austin Powers saying, you know, $3.3 million. Um, now, you could attack that. You could say, are your assumptions, you know, right or wrong? Okay, fine. You know, um, but what I like about those kind of solutions is that you can then go and play, well, what if we have two firewalls or you know this or that, and you can kind of at least have a working model. The, typically, the, the problem I have with these products is that the model required to make, to make that number requires the customer to have that same model of, of their network. Like I can tell you that I, I ran Nessus and I got vulnerability XYZ, but if I tell you that I ran Nessus and I got vulnerability XYZ, and because of these nine other factors, or, or in some cases, 900 other factors, you know, your value at risk is, is $3 million, you're probably not going to believe that. And, and that's the biggest issue I'm having with that market. I talk to a lot of CISOs and CIOs who simply don't believe 
in that risk model. They think that their risk model is so unique and so customized that uh, that that it's 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 not there. Um, and until we get there, it's it's tough because we're leaving out lots of things like BYOD. You know, how do you value an on-prem Oracle CRM solution versus a off-world, you know, or off-network, you know, Salesforce, you know, CRM solution? You can't. You know, how do you? How can you evaluate uh, a container, you know, running at Google Cloud versus the same exact container, you know, running at, at Azure, um, or the integrity of AT and T, you know, delivering you your data versus, um, I don't know, Sprint or, or 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 somebody else? The world is so complex. I just don't believe in these these. I don't think we have an accurate risk model for for that stuff. Yeah, and I think a lot of organizations too miscalculate their risk appetite. You know, they think that they can <laughs> absorb much more than they really can, um, and there still seems to be that fundamental, I guess, divide between. You know, we have the issue where, you know, we bring together all these different departments, whether it be the COO, CEO, IT, compliance, or risk management, getting them to understand. Uh, each other's needs and risk appetite when it comes to cybersecurity seems to be a challenge. How do we get it into terms that everybody kind of agrees on? I like to tell organizations that they need to just stick to the basics. And, you know, there's two ways to do basics. You know, one is to build your network secure in the first spot. So if you have the chance to build a network from the ground up, two-factor authentication, control access, do mandatory um, uh, access control on, on your on just a wide variety of things. Unfortunately, for most organizations, they're doing security second, they're adding it in. And at that point, you, you now have the complexity of a network that you don't know a whole lot about with a wide variety of vendors who weren't really designed to work together. So I like to tell people to do the kind of things we did at Tenable, where you could basically make statements after you collect all your logs and packets and your scans and your, your, your agents, you can actually make statements that say, I, I know I'm supposed to have about 75,000 windows computers. I know they're supposed to have semantic antivirus on it. I know they're supposed to be configured a certain way. Start asking those kind of questions and do that as often as you can. So you can detect deviations from your expect, your expected results out there. This is a great way to build a culture and, and increase your cyber hygiene without trying to, to, to boil the ocean. Yeah, it kind of almost sets like your, your healthy baseline of where you are and where you want to be. And it's even basic things like, okay, um, so what, what does it mean to be secure? And too many people try to be 100% secure and you're not going not gonna to do it. So that just like we said a little while ago, first thing we have to do is stop saying cyber. So, so instead of saying, let's say secure, like, okay, every one of our Windows computers, you, know, you make a decision. Are we going to go full hardening or just a little bit of hardening, right? Okay, what's the basic amount we want to look for? How do we ensure that? Do we have to put, you know, CrowdStrike, Silence, and Semantic on every point? Or are we okay with just Microsoft, um, you know, antivirus? Well, then audit that. Make sure that that happens. Whatever your version of minimums are, make sure you audit that. And if something does fall out of place, make sure that you understand why that, uh, you know, that that, that happened. Um, the more you do that, the more it's easier to find find bad guy activity, too, because it's, it's not going to be an anomaly. It'll be an exception. When you lock down a network and you minimize who can talk to who and what apps can do to each other, um, it's much more likely you're going to find a you know offensive event or a bad guy insider um, than through some anomaly or some spike in you know DNS logs or you know anything like that. 
Yeah, one of the challenges I see too with a lot of organizations I've worked with is they'll have, you know, half a dozen to a dozen half implemented solutions that they've kind of went out and bought and they didn't really take the time to take that full total cost of ownership into it. That, you know, when you buy some of these things, you often need a person or persons behind that running it. Um, how do you help kind of folks orient that to say, hey, you might have to buy this, but there's some added costs that you really have to think about as well? Well, it goes back to what I was just saying. How, what is the version of security for, for the network? What kind of monitoring should we have? Like, for example, if somebody says, hey, we're not going to do full packet capture for longer than 90 days, we're good with the week, but we'll do, we're going to do metadata and augment that with proxy logs for you know, 365 days, that's great. Um, if that's your strategy, and I'm, I'm being simplistic here, but if that's your strategy, you should be able to replace, uh, you know, your proxy with, uh, you know, which is a traditional, you know, proxy with something like a Caspi solution and not, you know, uh, have a huge change to your, you know, your operation center um, and, and, and be able to do those things. Um, now, at the same time, when brand new technologies come up, like uh, cloud, you know, hey, we're going to push, uh, you know, workloads and jobs and containers and, you know, serverless to, 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 to Amazon and Google Cloud. I, I, I'm astounded by how often that's done in this day and age without any knowledge of, of, uh, of, of security. We come preaching to the choir here, um, but that just means that they don't have a detection to look for exceptions. You know, what, what are these things doing out here? Yeah, and often it's when people rush to the cloud, I almost feel like they, they almost kind of get sold on something that, not that it's being deceptive, but I don't think they fully understand. Yeah, while it's easy to implement, you know, we might not have to be doing exchange clustering, full failovers in a hot and a cold site. Yes, the cloud gives you some reliability and stability, but there's other things that need to be set up with it that I almost think I've kind of used this analogy a lot lately with folks to say, you, know, you go to Microsoft, say, I want to buy SharePoint. But it's almost like saying you go to a restaurant and say, I want a steak. And then they bring out a cow and they, they say, well, I ordered a steak. They say, sure, you just, you just have to cut it out of, the steak, out of the cow. It just doesn't come as a steak. Right. The, um, the story I like to tell is that uh, you know, if you look at the complexity of running exchange on your own, where you have to have failover, uh, you know, backups, antivirus, anti-spam, you know, run the actual Windows operating system, Versus the ease of use of Office 365, um, a lot of people are going for Office 365, and they should because email is a social internet you know, thing. You don't get a whole lot of benefit from you know doing it on on your on your own. Um, but at the same time, if you don't do Office 365 correctly, you lose a lot of forensics. You lose the ability to audit you know kind of what's going on, and and, and I, it, those features are there. But sometimes people aren't buying them, or their staffs aren't thinking about that when they're deploying it. And I've, I've had a couple of organizations I've worked with where they've been getting popped um, with just simple things like, you know, folder redirection and, and, uh, so, and, and it's, it's hard to troubleshoot that with the same kind of technology that we've had on-prem. Definitely. So, you know, I greatly appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me today. Where, where can people find you and what are you, what are you up to these days? So I'm pretty active on uh, on LinkedIn. I post a lot of news about our companies in the industry. Uh, that's there. Our website's at gula.tech. We have investor at uh, gula.tech. If you are interested in, you know, running a pitch deck by us or just asking, you know, for advice, uh, you know, we're we're pretty focused on the market. And uh, of course, if anybody's interested in a great, uh, you know, vulnerability management cyber hygiene solution, I'm going to, you know, recommend Tenable. 
Um, but we're also working with, I think, 25 or so of the leading, you know, sort of next generation cyber companies coming up uh, through the ranks right now. That's awesome. Yeah, no, congrats on everything with Tenable. It's been an amazing story. And it's, you know, it's it's my uh, vulnerability management uh, drug of choice when I work with uh, with a lot of clients in both consulting and, and having them on-prem. There's a lot of great people at Tenable who make, uh, you know, Nessus and Tenable IO and Security Center do amazing things. Yeah. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. I greatly appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.